Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the EIU Digital Economy Podcast. In this series, we'll be examining how digitization is shaping the global economy, what that means, and its implications for businesses. We'll be investigating the technological, commercial, social, and regulatory trends shaping the digital economy and meeting some of the people making those trends happen. The series is sponsored by DXE Technology, an independent IT services company serving over 6,000 clients across 70 countries. We thank them for their support. In this first episode, we'll be setting the scene and asking, what is the state of the digital economy? How has digitization shaped and how will it continue to shape the global economy? To get some insight from the coalface, I met up with Michael Kent, CEO of Asimo, a London-based digital startup that offers cross-border payments. Asimo's customers use its services to send money to over 195 countries, and the company employs a global team of developers. I wanted to know, what's it like to run a digital business whose addressable market is constrained only by the reach of the internet? We're here in your, your offices in Angel. It's uh, it's uh, typical what people might imagine as a startup's offices. We've got literally a table tennis table in front of us. Um, and, a, and a bar. So and a we've bar. Got, I've got a few beers and some spirits, yeah. What's it like running a global business from a relatively small operation like this? So we have people based all over the world, both in terms of our customers, in terms of our investors, but also the people that work for, for me and ultimately for the organisation. So I think... One of the biggest things that I've learned from coming from a very centralized business, my last business was a high street based money transfer company. So we were really, you know, we were command and control and we had to make sure that we knew where the money was all the time. The biggest difference for me and and Asimo is a tech business. It happens to be doing money transfer, but it's really a technology business is you have to trust your people and push the decision making power down into the organization. I think one of the ironies of, of building good technology is, is the more senior you get, the further you are away from the coalface and, and the less experience you are about the technologies and the processes and practices that people are using to build your technology. And so you have to trust your people. I think the, the hiring great talent is, a, is, a, is even more important than it's ever been. I think it's always about the people. But hiring great talent and then pushing down responsibility into the organisation and, and letting them make the best decisions for the business. Probably one of the most important points to get that happening and not have to micromanage people is, is culture. And you'll have seen as you walked in the other uh, startup um, stereotype, I guess we have, is our mission and our vision and our values on the wall very prominently as you come in. We want every single person who works for Asimo or indeed touches Asimo in any way, both the investors and the customers, to know exactly why we exist, what our definition of success is, and the ways that we like to work to get there. How do you stay connected to your customers, given that the majority you will never meet uh, and you'll never encounter in person? How do you make sure that you're understanding their needs as quickly as possible without that kind of face-to-face interaction? So we're we're lucky and unlucky in that we have a phenomenal feedback loop. If somebody's sending money to mum, dad, brother, sister, or a business contact and it doesn't get there, they let us know about it. They're not shy in coming forward. So we have a very fast feedback loop when we know people are happy or not. The great thing about offering a digital service is that you're in people's hands all the time and you can ask them questions. So we're constantly asking our customers for something called 
uh, NPS, Net Promoter Score. You may have heard, if you, particularly on this podcast, if you're talking to different uh, digital leaders, I think a lot of them will reference NPS. We constantly ask for NPS. We're tracking it on a daily basis. We're looking for the feedback that that gives us. But I do agree. There's no, there's no replacement for actually meeting people face to face. So we actually have a team here at Asimo who are customer liaison. And we'll be inviting about 10 people a week to come in and talk us through the product, both believers, detractors, people who've never heard of us before. And all the time we're taking that information, disseminating it through the organization to hopefully make people make better decisions as it when, you know, coming back to the last question, how, what should we build? How should we build it? Um, how should we split our resource and, and where should we focus? So China is obviously a big and important market for you and is increasingly uh, leading the way in which technology is used. What have you learned from operating over there? So I think China is one of the most fascinating digital markets on earth. It's huge. It's developing 10 times faster probably, well, certainly than the, than the Western internet market. And five years ago, when I was in Beijing, everything was cash and you, you paid everyone uh, using currency and quite often you get fake notes back and there are all the, the sort of nuances around that. These days, it's very hard to pay for transport or food or in fact be a functioning member of society, certainly in the, in the, in the trading hubs of China, the big, the big cities, without having a, a digital identity and being plugged into, I think the big ones are... Alibaba and um, Ant Financial and, and uh, Tencent and WePay. So that is, it's, you, I actually had a situation where I couldn't pay for a meal. I was maybe buying someone dinner because I wasn't fully on the Chinese payment ecosystem. Very embarrassing, lost lots of faith. Uh, face but um yeah it's 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 super interesting how they've gone from zero to you know fully digital in a very short period of time i think that's actually probably the clearest signpost that we can see for the rest of the world going in that direction now the speed of development and the speed of, of moving there will will vary hugely i was just in um africa last week it's fascinating to see that kenya has over 50 percent of its gdp going through its payment uh process mobile payment network called mpesa and then you've got somewhere like nigeria which is actually a larger economy where adoption of digital remains stubbornly slow high cost and there's a lot of work to do still to build consumer apps that really work for people there but the direction of travel is very clear. And I don't think anyone can argue that looking at China and looking at Kenya and M-Pesa, that that's not going to be the future of money, digital and dispersed and, and, a, and available to everyone, which is the exciting thing. We're, we're expecting that uh, millions more people will be coming online in the next five years, billions even. What impact is that going to have on us as both individuals using the internet and as businesses operating on the internet? So it's, it's a great question, and I, I'm not entirely sure I know the answer, but what I do know for sure is that to build a big global digital company, you can't be about sharing cat videos on the internet or helping people just search for information. You've got to be solving big transformational problems that impact everyone on their day-to-day -day lives. So that is stuff like financial services, that is stuff like healthcare, that is stuff like identity. And people who tackle those big problems on a global scale will be the next billion dollar or, in fact, multi-trillion dollar businesses that come along. Companies like Asimo show how digitization is changing the rules of the global economy. To get a bigger picture view of what this means for businesses, I spoke to Professor Annabel Gower, Chair in Digital Economy at the University of Surrey, 
and George Zarkadakis, digital lead at global risk and human capital advisory firm Willis Towers Watson. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. So, Annabelle, you study the digital economy, so you must have a clearer idea than most of what that actually means. So, what is it? So, the digital economy is simply our plain old economy when it has been struck by the internet. And uh, for the last 20 years, we have seen not only the internet, but uh, everybody has access to a mobile device and we all connect it together. So the digital economy is the economy in as much that it is being affected by digital technologies such as the internet, such as mobile, such as connectivity. And you can add to that big data, machine learning, artificial intelligence, blockchain, internet of things, and all these new things that keep piling up. So what, what are some of the ways in which uh, digitization has changed our economy? So that's a great question because it has changed it in, in almost all the aspects of production and consumption. So if we first look at the way uh, companies reach consumers through digitization and the internet and mobile connectivity, companies today have access to a much greater and much more global reach of consumers that they could never access before. So it has definitely changed distribution of goods, as well as from the consumer's perspective, every consumer now has access to a lot more offering that they could have had before. So we went from a geographically constrained uh, access zone and scoping to a real global, uh, global um, world stage there. Another way in which uh, digitization and the digital economy has changed business is through advertising. And um, as we all know, one of the most powerful firms in the digital economy is Google. And uh, Google search engine is probably the single most important technology that has helped the world make sense of all this content on the internet. And the genius that they had was to, to put some advertising business model associated with it. And it has really changed how companies can advertise. Now, if we want to go to the, to the part in which how has digital changed the ways of producing and perhaps to some extent the way innovation has changed? Well, obviously, digital tools have, have impacted the way production and innovation has happened in different ways according to different kinds of industries. So the way in which digitization has affected automobile manufacturing uh, is going to be different than the way it's going to change you know, uh, retail or the way it's going to change transport. But there is no single part of the economy where at least an important part of the production uh, process is being affected or transformed by, um, by the digital economy. How is, how is um, digitization um, affected competition between businesses? So, so uh, that's a great question. And I think the single most important uh, change is in the fact that now competition is organized around platforms and the associate ecosystems. And by platforms, I will mean uh, fundamental core technologies, such as, for example, Apple iOS or Google Android, which are owned by firms, which are fundamental technological building blocks, on top of which a whole array of other firms can build complementary services and innovate. So when I teach to my MBA students about how uh, digitization is changing competition, I use the metaphor of playing tennis in the old world where we used to teach competition about company A competing with company B. 
just like in a game of tennis, player, player A competing against player B. And now we're moving in a world which I would compare to football. Team A with the team captain, who would be the platform leader there, is competing against team B. And what we have in the example of, of Apple versus Google is Apple, as well as all the application developers which are part of the Apple ecosystem, uh, whose destinies are joined up with Apple, but they are not on the payroll of Apple, and nor are they traditional suppliers to Apple in what we have called for decades traditional supply chain. How this amorphous constellation of organizations is competing against another constellation of organizations, which constitute the, the ecosystem of, of Google Android. What does this platformization, if that's a word, mean for traditional businesses? Is the strategy to try and become a platform, or is it to align oneself with a platform in order to piggyback, to follow a, a team captain, as you put it? So um, I've just um, I've just finished writing a book which is going to be published in a, in, a, in, a, in a few months' time called The Business of Platforms, a Strategy in the Age of Digital Competition, Innovation and Power. And in this book, uh, we have a whole chapter devoted to what can incumbent firms do. And indeed, either joining a platform uh, as a complementor or creating a platform are one of the two options that we that that we indicate. One thing is sure is going to be impossible to not pay attention to uh, platform strategies and and as platform companies are um, able to enter more and more markets. Uh, for example, if you think about Amazon, it's entering a variety of markets. Started in in book publishing and retail, now going to food, uh, is is a major player into cloud-based services. Um, the, the very concept of industries has changed. We used to think of industries are fairly stable arenas of competition. And if you were in, say, you know, I'm making paper, you would only be worried about rivals who are making papers. And now you are wondering, is Google is going to come into my business? Is Amazon is going to come into my business? And the digital nature of, 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 the, of, the, of the value creation process makes the boundaries between industries much more porous. George, your company advises clients on risk management. What are some of the biggest risks associated with digital business and operating in the digital economy? Absolutely. So I guess the most obvious risk is uh, cyber risk. Okay, as companies become more uh, digital, as they are becoming more dependent on the data and on the sort of cloud infrastructure, cyber is becoming a, an extremely important risk, especially when uh, regulators and legislation such as GDPR have a hefty um, costs for a company that is, is not compliant. But I'd like to mention two other risks, I think, that uh, sometimes have been overlooked and I think are very relevant to the digital economy. One is uh, risk around people. Now, as companies become platforms and open up, they come across a number of ch new challenges. Like, for example, they want to increase their speed of capability. They need to hire talent very, very quickly. Okay? And what they end up doing very often is hiring contractors in order to be able to scale very quickly, back to the point that Annabelle made. So a new risk that we discover there is uh, of, of IP loss. So it's often the case that your contractors work for you and when they leave, they take all the knowledge with them. So that's a new risk that is, was not there before. And we can come back to that perhaps. And finally, I think there's a, there's, there's a political risk here as well, okay, that's interconnected. So globalization and digitalization, in fact, go hand in hand. We've seen these two phenomena sort of, you know, running in parallel over the past, past few years. And if you're just thinking about, uh, you know, the new wave of automation um, disrupting major industries, like, for example, transportation, warehousing, logistics, 
and it will certainly disrupt other industries as well, but perhaps not so profoundly, then you will have impact on the workforce, you'll have impact on income, you'll have impact on income inequality further uh, down the road. And we've already seen what does that mean in terms of political risk. There's, there's no question that one of the, uh, the major concerns around uh, digitization relates to the, its impact on labor and the future of work. From an organizational perspective, George, how does digitization, what does the human impact mean on the company's workforce from your perspective? I think there's multiple, if you like, impacts uh, on the enterprise uh, as enterprises undergo what is generally called uh, digital transformation. As they try to become, <coughs> excuse me, more data-driven, be able to um, uh, react more quickly to how the market is changing and ultimately uh, serving their customers. <coughs> I think one area of uh, major impact is definitely the area that has to do with artificial intelligence and machine learning and robotics. Uh, being adopted by companies and disrupting our very idea of what a job really is. So there what we see is um, not whole jobs um, being eliminated. That's not really the main um, theme right now, but we are definitely seeing many, many job tasks being automated. Now, this creates an opportunity, but it also creates a, a cost and a challenge. The opportunity there is for people to do more productive work, uh, to be paid uh, a higher um, sort of salary because it, it will be a more sort of um, valuable uh, job. But it also means that the challenge is for finding the reskilling pathways in order for those people to advance themselves within the enterprise or within the, the organization. And being able to navigate themselves into a new world where career means a completely different thing. The other um, area that I think is really important, apart from culture, uh, to, uh, to, to, re to realize as, as a potential impact uh, area is the very organization of companies, back to the point that Annabelle uh, mentioned when we talk about uh, platforms. So instead of thinking about hierarchies, instead of thinking of this top-down uh, approach, instead of thinking of silos, the organizations of the future, the successful organization of the future, have to work more like multiple sort of networked agile teams. Okay? And once you start thinking about an organization that is, looks like a massive, big sort of software company, if you like, where groups of people working together with multiple disciplines, multiple skills, creating new products and new innovation, then you really need to think, rethink stuff like how you measure performance in that organization. So instead of having an individual performance measurement, you have to think about around team performance. You have to think around, you know, what does that mean for rewards? And what does that mean for all those traditional things that HR professionals and your whole career was based on? So we're talking about a ma massive disruption at the enterprise level. And that's where leadership comes into play. Uh, only companies that have you know, adequate leadership at the helm that can see the future and they have the courage, if you like, to take the organization from the present and move them into the future as quickly as possible because there's a lot of competition around. Unless you have that leadership team in place, then the future of some of those enterprises is quite bleak. And do you, see, do you see that happening? Do you see examples of business leaders who are taking the bull by the horns and actually leading their organizations to where the future of work may be? I get the sense that the general atmosphere is sort of wait and see with an undercurrent of dread about what the impact of technology might be. But are there organizations who are saying we know where we need to be and, and dragging themselves into the future? I think we have, you know, a variety of cases, right? Uh, sometimes it is it feels like what you just described, but we increasingly see uh, in many across many industries business leaders really getting it and uh, working diligently with their teams and with outside consultants in figuring out a strategy for the future. 
Uh, now that those kinds of strategies around how you transform not just your technology but your whole sort of business DNA are very very challenging indeed. So uh, I think most and most more people get it. Uh, I've seen a great change in how people, for instance, think about uh, the potential of artificial intelligence over the past 12 months. For instance, conversations that I had with business leaders like 12, 18 months ago were all about, so what is artificial intelligence? Uh, the conversation has progressed a great deal. And we see more and more companies, for example, adapting AI into the, into the systems, products and infrastructure. So, uh, yeah, there is hope. So nobody knows what the future is going to be. And, uh, and uh, right now we say the future is going to have the shape of artificial intelligence or big data or blockchain or, or whatever else um, uh, people are talking about today. But one important question that responsible leaders have to ask themselves is how they can create value in the society of the future, given who they are. And so that means with um, not being overly uh, paranoid and throwing the baby with the bathwater, assuming that they can't do anything, that, that they used to be able to do because now it's a whole brand new world. And it also means avoiding being too complacent or too uh, attentist saying, you know, let's wait and see. I think it does mean exactly like George said, courageous leadership. And what courageous leadership means today is to, to um, formulate the ways in which an organization can create value given the world we're in now. And in order to create value, it means committing some resources and, and not just talking the talk, but walking the walk as to how do we create value above and beyond what's already existing out there. I also think that in a world of the platform economy where a lot of people make the mistake to think that the organization of the future is just a digital market, a digital marketplace. You know, we've always had markets and there is a great room and a great need for exchanges, but there is also a room in our society for collective organizations. And when collective organizations start to behave internally as if all they are are just markets and exchanges where all the work is being done externally and therefore we lose IP, we lose knowledge, we even lose the identity and the DNA of what the company is. What companies who do that are actually doing is they are sabotaging their own future because nothing is left, they are hollowing out the corporation and they're just relying on the same contractors for the same transactional approach, which is the opposite of what we need to do. And so a purely transactional approach that forgets the value of collective organization is really the danger that many leaders are facing now uh, because they are overly afraid of, of, of the competition and they think in terms of saving costs, outsourcing, and asking answers external to themselves. George, as you mentioned earlier, digitization and globalization have gone hand in hand. And earlier in this podcast, we've heard from uh, the CEO of Asimo, a uh, UK startup who has a very global business by virtue of reaching across the internet and using its digital nature. Uh, is this something that companies are, is this an opportunity that companies are grasping or has there been, so far been uh, limited adoption of the capacity to reach across the world with the exception of the, the, the mega giants, the Googles, the Facebooks, etc.? Uh, or is there more globalization to come as a result of further digitization? So I think global companies are definitely harvesting the, um, the, the bounty, if you like, of globalization, meaning that uh, they can um, leverage the core competences that Annabelle just mentioned in order to deliver customer value across many multiple geographies. So, for instance, we're working with several clients in financial services that they will um, you know, develop a solution in a particular country, uh, pilot it, make it successful, and then replicate that and scale it very quickly across the geographies. And I think that's a very important 
advantage that global organizations have. Uh, for me, what is also interesting is that uh, startups now, which is like a small group of people with a, with a great idea and good uh, backing from investors, can very quickly scale their applications as well. So the, uh, the playing field in the digital economy, it's much flatter than it used to be. And I think that's an important aspect of the digital economy as well that uh, needs to be mentioned. I would temper your enthusiasm on this. Because, um, yes, it's true that the level playing field certainly has changed. And when you see a company such as Amazon, who originally created internally tools uh, on about storage, about data analytics, about uh, data processing, which they eventually, because of their very scale, they had to develop very advanced tools. And eventually, they actually commercialized them as AWS, Amazon Web services. And by the way, many people don't know that, but the single most important source of profit to Amazon is not the, the, the goods and services you buy on Amazon website, is the services uh, coming from, um, from AWS. So it's absolutely true that the startups today and small firms have access to IT capabilities, if you want to call it in an old sort of old way, that they did not, they couldn't dream of accessing because it needed such big investment to, to, to develop these, that they didn't have access to that. But now there is a whole new market where, you know, in the form of software as a service or platform as a service, which are basically, you know, subscription to, 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 to software capabilities on demand, a lot of smaller companies have access to these capabilities. But instead of saying that this, this levels the playing field between big guys and small guys, what I'm saying is that it raises the water for everyone so even the small companies now need to have these capabilities in order to even be in the game. But you still have very important barriers to entry in terms of scale, in terms of network effects um, that are associated with the, with the big uh, giant. And, um, and, and, and that's why I am less uh, optimistic that George about, about the idea that the digital economy is somehow creating more partnership and, and less competition. So one of the aims of this podcast is to identify and investigate many trends that are shaping the digital economy. So I'd like to ask you both, um, what do you think some of the biggest trends uh, will be in 2019? Uh, I'll ask you, George. Okay, so, so here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking I'm looking back into the last 10 years and what were the th sort of key technologies that brought uh, those made those big companies happen, like Google, like Facebook, or Airbnb. So I would say, you know, uh, mobile, uh, social media, cloud, those three key technologies is what made those companies happen. I now see three new technologies that will shape the future, at least in the next maybe five to ten years, in a different way, in my, in my opinion, I would like to, to uh, qualify that. So one is definitely artificial intelligence. Okay. Secondly, I would say the Internet of Things, and what that means in terms of sensors and security and so on, and, and definitely blockchain as well. So AI, blockchain, and the Internet of Things will create new industries. In fact, many, many people refer to those three technologies together as Web 3.0. So it's a kind of like replay of what Annabelle mentioned before. People are, are sort of uh, you know, looking at the future and Web 3.0 with renewed hope for more democracy and more sort of you know, ownership and, and sort of, you know, a free voice and, and so on. We'll see if this is going to happen or not. But um, definitely uh, there is, you know, renewed optimism that this new wave of automation and this new wave of technologies will transform the digital economy in a more humane and, a more, and hopefully more democratic way. But that remains to be seen, of course. Yeah, I was going to say, do you share that hope? 
I personally do. And I think we're going to have two different stories in the next 10 years. We'll have a story that uh, will formulate, let's say, in the West, perhaps in the States, in, in somewhat differently in Europe, and a complete different story in China because of the way, because of how data will be used. So, for example, China has been so far very hostile to blockchain. Is something that um, seems that is does not very well align with uh, the, the the former government. Whilst uh, you know, in in the states and in, in Europe, people have been more open to blockchain. I think blockchain can you know, blockchain can be the big um, the big changing factor, changing agent, if you like, in the next ten years when it comes to technology. Okay, Annabelle, what are the trends? Uh, whether they are technology trends or social trends or commercial trends that you think we should be looking at in the coming year? So in terms of technology trend, I would agree with George. Uh, and these would be my top three in terms of artificial intelligence and alongside with that uh, machine learning, um, Internet of Things, blockchain. So George already mentioned those. So I would like to speak about something which is not purely technical. And I think that what we, I think the next 10 years are going to bring in a, a much deeper realization that technology alone cannot be assumed to be either good or bad. And I think that we are going to have a much more sophisticated conversation and we're going to expect our leaders to have a more sophisticated understanding in the ways in which technology can be used for good and for bad. And where it's coming home now is because of, I think, artificial intelligence. Up until recently, we assumed that um, technology and automation and all sorts of technological progress was going to be good for the economy and good basically for the world at large. And now we are in a situation where we see that while it may be good for some people in the economy, a lot of people are left by the wayside. And a lot of people lose their job, a lot of people feel disenfranchised, and, and maybe as an aggregate, the economy is doing better. But within that, there is a greater disparity between the rich and the poor. So I think it's going to, I think a big trend, if you wish, is going to be um, re-evaluating what we want as a society and what role technology can play into that. Annabelle, George, thank you very much for joining us. Thank, thank you. you. Pleasure. That concludes the first episode of the EIU Digital Economy podcast. In future episodes, we'll be discussing the impact of digitization on finance, on work and management, on cities and trade, and more besides. To make sure you don't miss that, please subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. Thanks again to our sponsors DXC, an independent IT services company that specialises in digital transformation. And thank you for listening.